The governor lifts the veil on his education reform plan, but not enough for one lawmaker. Now your local bar wants slot machines. And the Ohio Supreme Court adds unclaimed interest to unclaimed funds. These topics and more this week on Columbus on the Record. From the nationwide studio at WOSU at Coside, this is Columbus on the Record, WOSU-TV's weekly analysis of the top stories affecting Central Ohio. Joining guest host Karen Kassler this week, Bill Cohen, Statehouse reporter for Ohio Public Radio, Herb Asher, Ohio State University political scientist, and Bob Clegg, Republican strategist. Welcome to Columbus on the Record. I'm Karen Kassler. Very pleased to be sitting in for Mike Thompson this week. The debate over Governor Strickland's education reform plan is heating up at the State House. This week, a Republican lawmaker took the extraordinary step of taking the governor to court for refusing to turn over documents that are the basis of his education reform plan. State Representative Seth Morgan of the Dayton area claimed the Strickland administration is not being transparent. At first, the governor simply referred Morgan to the plan's 400-source bibliography. But after the lawsuit was filed, the governor's office did release some records. Now, Bob Clegg, let's turn to you. Republican lawmakers have been asking for this information for a while, but this seems like a very headline-making move here. Was this lawsuit really necessary? Well, I mean, the problem was they're trying to figure out what this budget is going to do and, and whether it's sustainable, you know, beyond just th this two-year period that they're voting on. And they weren't getting the information they needed, and they weren't the only ones. The Columbus Dispatch uh, filed a public re records request um, wanting to get more information also. And uh, they brought in the budget director for hearings. She was not forthcoming enough for their questions, answering their questions. So there were real concerns on, on the Republican side about what exactly this education reform plan will do. But in her defense, she's the budget director and they have an education policy advisor, an education czar, so to speak. Why wouldn't she refer questions to him as opposed to answering well, them herself? she didn't, number one. And number two, she is the budget director, so she needs to know the, the dollars and cents of how this is going to work with school districts, who's going to gain, who's going to lose, why they, they came up with that. Because the problem was many of the school districts that were going to lose dollars in this new plan are poor school districts in southeast Ohio, which kind of didn't make sense. And you had a lot of lawmakers in that area of the state who were upset about that and wanted to, wanted to find out what the reasoning was behind those kinds of decisions, which is why you got to this point. Now, the governor's office has said he's released basically everything that he has out there, and, and this should be enough. Should it be enough? Well, I think I'd make a distinction between uh, records that indicate costs, financial information, things like that, versus records that are notes about e education research and uh, you know all sorts of recommendations about how you students best learn and things like that. And I'm not sure how much a lot of that latter information will be of great help to uh, uh, Representative Morgan. But I think obviously knowing what the estimates are based on in terms of dollars, estimates about teacher salaries and all of that, I think surely the legislature should have that. I think one of the lessons here, and I, I think uh, Representative Bouchelder is talking about this, is that maybe the legislature should actually have its own independent legislative budget office once again. And I think that actually makes a lot of sense. 
The governor just uh, sent over about 6,000 more pages of documents on a CD-ROM mm -hmm. to Representative Morgan. That, that mean, means the grand total of pages is 7,117. So I don't know if that's going to satisfy the Republicans or not. I Come sense on. that they, they want to make this an issue and, yeah. uh, you know, election year is coming up. Well, shouldn't, though, I mean, their point seems to be that this is a huge overhaul we're talking about. This mm -hmm. is major changes in the way that we're doing business when it comes to education. I think the Republicans' point is, shouldn't we have more information than just what we've gotten in the last couple of months? Yeah, I mean, they're making recommendations like reducing the size of, of classes, kids' at pupils in classes, increasing the numbers of teachers, um, shifting to an all-day kindergarten. These are all things that cost a lot of money. And what they're trying to get at is, okay, what evidence are, do you have that substantiates the all-day kindergarten or substantiates that particular per-pupil ratio to teachers so that they can better understand, you know, if we're going to mandate that these school districts do this, we got to know the reasoning behind it because it's going to cost a lot of money. I, I think this is one of those squabbles that the general public couldn't care less about. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is a real partisan insider thing. I'm not saying the issue isn't important, education funding and so forth. We're talking about billions of dollars uh, and the future of the, of the children, but it's real inside baseball. Well, but every time a levy comes up on the ballot, we get this discussion of what am I paying for? Why should I give the school district more money? So it is something that people do care about, at least when it comes to it's well, on my ballot right now. But the notion of the legislature actually reading through the education research to see what justifications there are for smaller class size, uh, that, that's sort of beyond the pale. Knowing what the estimated costs are, that's a very different thing. But, uh, you know, and one way you, what they could do, of course, is they could bring in education experts, policy experts for, for testimony and ask them to say, how important is it to have uh, uh, better trained teachers or a smaller class size or whatever? Or what does the literature say? But I mean, I can imagine now you just simply do a data dump of everything that's ever been written that, that you've looked at. And now which, the which I don't understand why the governor didn't do in the first, first place, because yeah. I think the governor has l elevated this to a court case. He mm -hmm. could have just. You know, when they put in the initial request, just say, okay, fine, here's, here's everything. It. And it's here's everything and just give it to him. It's certainly the issue that he campaigned on. So yeah. It's certainly it's top yeah. of So there would be no reason. I mean, this makes it look like he's trying to hide something because it took, you know, a filing in a court to get him to finally, you know, unveil everything. Well, let's move on to the next topic, topic two here. Casino developers soon will be collecting signatures to get their proposal on the fall ballot. Horse track race owners have asked lawmakers to allow slot machines at their tracks, and now many bar and restaurant owners want a piece of the action. An association that represents bars and restaurants says if the race tracks get slots, well, they should get slots as well. Bill Cohen, it seems everybody wants slot machines, except for the voters who have rejected expanding gambling four times in the last two decades. Right, and the, the interesting thing is that uh, one of these big proposals this time around is an attempt to say we don't really need to go to voters this time. We think the legislators can pass this on their own. And that's the racetrack uh, owners and the Racing Commission. They insist that when Ohio voters okayed the lottery in 1973 uh, the, and amended the Constitution, that therefore uh, this kind of idea to put slots at the racetracks would be just an extension of the state lottery. Kind of so like Keno was an extension of the state lottery. Well, that's right. That's right. That would, some people argue that. So uh, they're saying we can just get legislators to do it. I don't. I, they're going to have a tough time succeeding convincing legislators, but it is an interesting argument. And of course, the governor is saying, well, not only am I against this kind of gambling expansion, I'm against this strategy of yeah. trying to go around the voters. And he's talking about a likely veto of it if they did do it. So no, I agree with Bill. But it, it is amusing, though, because what it does demonstrate here is that uh, there's a lot of money to be made in gambling, and the issue will never, in fact, die in Ohio. And obviously, we have gambling all around us in every other state. And uh, 
And so, and of course, we have a major budget problem right now. So that, of course, encourages people to say, well, here's a new revenue source, whether it really is that good a source or not. And so uh, I'm wondering, will we get to the stage where the state legislature and the governor will say it one day, look, one of these days, some private group is going to win on this, win a ballot issue or whatever. Should we, as the state leadership, decide, let's move forward, let the voters have a vote on it, of course, that's that, the Constitution require that, but let's put together the best possible deal for the state of Ohio, not for the racetrack industry, not for casino owners and things like that. And I think each year we get a little closer to, to that. I'm not sure we're there yet, but uh, I think that may happen someday. I think the political environment is such that uh, with the economy being down, that these issues are going to become more and more popular. That's why I think you're actually seeing bipartisan support of this newest, you know, with the racetracks, because I think, you know, both sides realize it's jobs. And you're right, Karen, that, that Keno opened that door to this whole idea of, you know, doing it without going to the people. And if you can make that stretch that Keno uh, sort of like the lottery, then, you know, slot machines is kind of like the lottery, too, in that respect. Well, still, though, you make the point about the economy not being in the greatest shape, and that certainly was the case even back in the fall. But yet, once again, voters rejected this. I mean, voters just don't seem voters to want Voters rejected this. it because a lot of money was spent against that issue by another mm-hmm. gambling, gambling company yeah. who, who didn't want enough, to be cut out of the action. Interestingly yeah. enough, is going to be possibly yes, on the ballot that, this fall, yeah, along yes, with Dan Gilbert, the other of the Cavaliers, yeah. to create these four casinos in four Ohio cities. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can put together a plan in which you'll get most of the gambling interests uh, in support, and, uh, and I think casinos have to be a part of that if you're going to be talking about economic development, particularly in the heart of some of our cities. So. The real question is, uh, will they be able to build some additional kinds of support? We know who the opponents are, uh, but will they be able to do a sort of a coalition of the whole? And right now, it doesn't look like they're there yet. And obviously, if you want to get the racetrack people involved, you better get them a cut of the proceeds or whatever, because they're arguing that the whole horse industry, the racing industry, is really very, very, very sick in Ohio. But if you have slot machines at racetracks, that doesn't do anything really for downtown cities by and large. And so therefore, those cities and the gambling interests that are purporting to represent those cities will be opposed to that. So again, it's one of these battle royals that we'll have. But but I think, as Bob said, I think you're seeing more and more bipartisan legislators, on a bipartisan way, more and more legislators saying, maybe we should consider it. And again, the ultimate cover they have is that whatever they consider, they would submit to the voters for the voters' approval. And so the the voters don't like it, it won't happen. Is there a possibility though, I know you mentioned this earlier, but is Ohio too late to the game here to really make money? I mean, is this an unending supply of money that we're just missing out on? I think, well, we are missing out on money, but I think people would say we're late to the game and therefore, in fact, it will not be as good a revenue producer as it might have been earlier. But the fact is Ohioans are gambling. They're gambling in Michigan. They're gambling in Indiana, West Virginia, Pennsylvania. They fly east and west and they gamble. So there is some money to be made, but it may not be in effect this this. And they can gamble at home. They can gamble at home online. Right. The latest estimate, I think, even by backers of this, is it would bring in maybe $600 million a year to government. And, you know, that doesn't solve all our economic problems, but it it helps. All right. Well, let's move on to topic three here. Ohio's elections laws need some tweaking. The recommendation that's coming out of the election reform summits that were held by Secretary of State Jennifer Bruner. The report from the Brennan Center in New York says counties need more than one early voting location, and Ohio's voter registration laws need an update. The recommendations aim to solve two big problems from the 2008 election, long lines at early voting locations and a high number of provisional ballots. 
Democrats. Herbasher, these recommendations are not going to come as a surprise to some, especially no, since they came from Jennifer Bruner herself. Well, and, they're, and, and they're not particularly controversial. I mean, I think uh, you know having multiple sites for early voting makes some sense. Uh, Ohio is one of the states with the highest level of provisional voting, so I think we need to have some clarification there. But I didn't find this, you know, and then the updating of voting lists and having better registration lists. I mean, that, that, this is all, I think, pretty good government kinds of things. So I don't think it'll generate a lot of controversy. But certainly, oh, go ahead. You want some voting rights activists, you know, they kept saying, I think, a few years ago, oh, people who cast provisional ballots, they're being discriminated against because a lot of their ballots are thrown out. But the latest study shows in the last election, 80% of Ohio's provisional ballots were, were counted, uh, the highest in the nation. And of those that were not counted, like 47%, well, those people weren't even registered to vote. So yeah. there was good reason to toss yeah, exactly. out those ballots. And another 36% of, of the uh, votes that were thrown out, well, those people were trying to vote in the wrong precinct or the wrong yeah. county. So at least according to our current rules, yes, they're supposed to be thrown out yeah. too. Well, one thing that seems to be heating up early here is redistricting. We've got yes. like three redistricting proposals out right now in terms of changing the way that we draw either legislative lines or congressional district lines. Yes. And that seems kind of a surprise to me too, because that was something that voters had a chance to vote on a couple years ago yes, and I also didn't well. want to change. <laughs> you might remember that. That's right. <laughs> but you know, after the Ron amendments lost, uh, then Representative Husted actually made a commitment uh, privately to a number of people interested in the issue that he would continue pursuing the issue. He's now over in the Senate and he's actually come up with, I think, a very reasonable proposal on, uh, that certainly is more than a good starting point for discussing how you might take the partisanship out of redistricting. There are other proposals. What's interesting about this is that, of course, here is uh, Senator Eusted, who will be running for Secretary of State, basically saying that uh, he would like the Secretary of State to no longer be involved in redistricting, and in fact would actually like the Secretary of State not to be administering elections. So it, it's, it's a very interesting kind of uh, approach that he is trying to take the partisanship out of elections and basically is taking a good part of the responsibilities of the office for which he'll be running, taking it away and trying to say, in the name of good government, let's make it less partisan. And I think actually, that this, this is a long shot, but I think actually this year, uh, since we do not know who will be the next Secretary of State. But since we, in fact, know that Jennifer Bruner is not running for re-election, it might be the case that the Democrats on the, in, the, in the House might say, wait a second, let's look at Usted's proposal, let's look at the other ones, let's see if we can collectively come up with a proposal that 60% of the House controlled by the Democrats, 60% of the uh, Senate controlled by the Republicans can agree upon. And the reason the Democrats might be willing to go along is I think if you were making, if you were a betting person right now, you would bet that the next Secretary of State is going to be John Husted, particularly if you don't change the method of redistricting, because then there will be a ton of money put into the Secretary of State's race. I don't want to underestimate Marilyn Brown, and Marilyn I think is a, you know, has a wonderful name and a wonderful person. But I think it, it might happen. What Bob's uh, laughing. Uh, no, because Herb's <laughs> right. Because, I mean, the problem with this is when, when Herb was working on this earlier, the Republicans controlled the process and the Republicans were against it. Yeah. Well, then, you know, right after that, John Husted came out and said, OK, I'm committed to doing this. Well, then we had the 2006 elections and the Democrats were against it because they controlled the process. And I think Herb is exactly right that with Jennifer Bruner not running for re-election, this is going to give this kind of proposal the best chance of, of actually being enacted and becoming uh, and it should part be, of the Constitution. It's going to happen. It should happen this year, not 2010. Yeah. But the history yeah. of this is, you know, there are a few people who are for reform in principle, like the League of Women Voters. But who when are sponsoring a contest that they say will take the partisan we'll, politics out of this entirely. We'll kind of prove that we can have a, you know, a nonpartisan fair process. But except for those good, quote, good government people, the partisan people in general, 
you know, if they if their party controls the current process, then they're for the status quo and the opposite. And they keep switching sides and <laughs> saying they're for a principle, and they're not. They're just <laughs> for their own self-interest. But, but again, since nobody knows who will control yeah. the process after 2010, this is this is one of the arguments yeah. we made. Yeah. And again, you said that a few yeah. years ago. Nobody's going to know. There's, 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 there, there's another group that's actually interested. It's called. I mean, they're not as powerful as they once were. It's called the media, the newspaper editors, and people like that. And I think there are some business and civic leaders who would say, actually, well, let, let's let's change the process because uh, this this process also encourages very very uh, you know extensive fundraising in certain contests. And that can certainly be helpful to certain media outlets. So <laughs> let's move on. Uh, picking up <laughs> certain media well, outlets. Picking up on Bill saying uh, something about self-interest, there's a chance that the state of Ohio has some of your money and you haven't claimed it. And now, speaking of interest, there's better news. If you do have unclaimed money that's sitting in the state's bank account, the Ohio Supreme Court says the state has to pay you interest when you collect it. So, Bill Cohen, all this unclaimed money, uh, why is it sitting there unclaimed? And doesn't the state want you to not claim it? <laughs> well, let's see. What is it? It's dormant bank accounts. It's uh, uncashed uh, stock dividend checks. It's uh, unclaimed rent deposits, utility deposits. And since 1991, we've had a law saying the state uh, can take it and then um, try to find the owners over the internet and advertisements and so forth. Uh, but it doesn't need to pay interest. And the court says, no, you do need to pay interest, at least for a few years. So, uh, I mean, the state is, uh, there's $1.2 billion that have built up in 5 million different accounts. And uh, I don't know. I mean, the state uh, the state does hold on to that money and has been using it. It's been siphoning some of it. And I off. believe it's in the budget that the state is going to be using at least a portion of that 1.2 billion dollars as a budget patch, so to speak. Right. It's 285 million dollars under Strickland's proposal. So uh, so they like having that money for emergencies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what's wrong with this? I mean, shouldn't shouldn't the state pay interest on these unclaimed funds? Yes, funds? they should because they're making money off of the, the other people's money, and and in most instances. Individuals have no clue that they have this money sitting there, and I think this has become a bigger problem in in, in the most recent years because it's I, I I look at it as a lifestyle thing. People's lifestyles are so hectic; they don't track their finances like they used to, and a lot of this stuff is falling between the cracks. And, and everybody is, wants a deposit. Yeah. You know, everybody wants you to pay something up front, yeah. and those kind of things end up in there, right? And so we're getting more and more money into this fund. And the, and the state of Ohio has been making out like crazy, but I think these individuals who didn't know it and then find out later should be getting some kind of, of payment back on that interest. But what happens to the state now? It could potentially lose this source of money, the, this uh, right now $280-some million in the budget. Well, I think as long as, the, as, long as you know, they obey the court order to pay interest, they can still siphon off money. The, yeah, the yeah. court didn't say you can't siphon off You're money, but you better have enough money in there to, to be able to pay the interest. Yeah, all I have to do is pay the people who, may, who make the claims for their... Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to be very many. And, uh, and so therefore, in fact, they'll still have a lot of money and yeah. they'll have a lot of cash in that fund. And some of that money is from people who've died. You know, yeah. we say, well, why don't people... Why doesn't everybody claim the money? People have moved, they have died, and, and uh, so there isn't really nobody dead. to give the money yeah. to. And certainly there are actually businesses that have made the whole business models on we're going to find people who have unclaimed funds and then that... And everybody's gotten those emails. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that's, that's a whole different topic too in yeah. terms of these. Some of these uh, are, are not exactly the most upfront Front businesses. Yeah, they yeah. charge you money to find your money, which yeah. you're entitled to in the first place. And, and actually to, to, to go and look and see if, if money is owed you is, is actually pretty easy. So... There's even a um, national database where yeah. you can look at all the states. Maybe you've got yeah. some money in California. You can do it on your own. You don't have to hire anybody yeah. to do it. Any idea for how long this interest has to be paid? I think they're trying to determine that. I don't, I don't think they're looking at from the beginning of when the unclaimed fund went into the 
system, but I think the court is going to figure out exactly how much the state's going to owe mm. in interest for that. Yeah, and have they decided on the method for determining the rate of interest? That's It'll a good question too, yeah. The average return on... I think this is going to be up to the Franklin County Trial Court, a common pleas court right mm. here in Columbus that the Supreme Court sent this case back to. After, mm. since 1991, after how many years, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> Never say it doesn't work yeah, out yeah. some way in the end, yeah, I guess. Yeah. All right, let's move on to our last topic. After weeks of bad news, Ohio's corrections officers received some good news this week. The Ohio Department of Corrections will not lay off 500 workers as originally planned. Well, that is thanks to union concessions and federal stimulus money. And guards at the Mansfield Prison now say they are optimistic the conditions will improve there. They had feared a Lucasville type riot because of some things that were happening. But after a meeting with prison officials, union leaders say changes are being made to ease tensions. Bob Clegg, this is all good news for now, but the prisons are still at 132 percent yeah. capacity, some over 200 percent capacity. What happens next? I, this is a classic case of the government kicking it down, kicking the can down the road because um, it's this is the problem with this federal stimulus money. It's it's going to it's going to save the day today. But what are we going to do, you know, down the road when, um, you know, that money's gone? It's a one-time only deal. And how are we going to continue to fund these 500 state workers that we're going to get laid off? And I think this is the kind of problem this whole budget is running into this this cycle that we're trying to uh, pass and implement by July 1st. Well, and the prisons department is very staff intensive. One in four people who work for the state of Ohio work for the prisons department mm. in some capacity. One in six state workers are actually in the prisons, mm. which is just an amazing sure. amount of people who sure. are involved in this. But this situation, Bob's right, it's one-time money, so it creates pressure. It makes you wonder what's going to happen two years from now. But one of the things we know that should happen, and it takes a long time for this to actually occur, is that we should have a systematic review of sentencing policy. Because one of the ways you relieve the problem of prison overcrowding is you make sure that there are, that some people who should not be in prison are not there or whatever. We don't use technology enough in terms of monitoring uh, you know, nonviolent offenders and uh, let's say on house arrest and things like that. So this may be a stimulus to finally start doing some things that we should have done probably years ago. Fortunately, we were never one of those states that actually went to three strikes and you're out which then had, I mean, those states actually had <laughs> tremendous growth in their prison population. Uh, the people who were most happy about that were the prison unions and the construction people who built the prisons <laughs> or whatever. So we never went that far, but we still do have, we have a problem. And, and, and Bob's right that two years from now, if we've done nothing else, and then those temporary monies are not there, we have, not, we have a problem, but we do have to do something else, and that is, I think, review sentencing policies, and the legislature is talking about that. Yeah, they're doing, like, one thing they're doing is to give uh, uh, inmates more uh, good time off. Uh, 10 or 15 years ago, we dropped that because we had truth in sentencing. We said, mm. if you're sentenced to 10 years, you get 10 years. Now they're saying, oh, and that's causing too much overcrowding, so mm. let's start letting uh, guys earn more time off their sentence uh, if they uh, take an alcoholism uh, or a drug treatment uh, course and succeed, or if they enroll in a college class and succeed. But does all that fly in the face of laws and, you know, upping the penalties for things, uh, cracking down on certain laws? We have this going on at the same yeah, time no, we have our prisons being overcrowded. Yeah, I, th I think our legislature needs to look, and I know they get, they get estimates on this, but they need to look more carefully about do we really automatically want to criminalize more activities and in increase the penalty on activities that are already criminal? That has consequences for your prison population. So I think, and, and probably one of the areas that they look at most is drug laws. Uh, New York State made some terrible mistakes in drug laws. They're finally revisiting that, you know, what, 40 years later. 
And they're doing that in part because they have such a financial and fiscal crisis, but they also realize that uh, there are a lot of people in jail who are nonviolent offenders, drug users, not drug sellers even. So it's, uh, I think we're going to have to re uh, review that. One other option, build more prisons. In the yeah, 1980s. The director says it cost about a billion dollars to build a prison. Right. So that seems to be out of the reach of That's the state, true. at least for right now. That's true. But in the 1980s, we did do that. We yeah. built, I think, more than 12 prisons. Uh, and that helped us uh, alleviate overcrowding for a while. And now here it is back. And, and we're told it could get up to 59,000. We're a little over 50,000 right yeah. now, 59,000 just a couple of years. And I guarantee you there are contractors out there who would think that would be a wonderful <laughs> solution <laughs> right now. And yeah. it really does, it gives the, the legislature an out by just building more prisons. I mean, they don't have to revisit all those laws that they passed maybe 10, 15 years ago that strengthened the penalties. Uh, they can just build more prisons and just put more people in. But then you have to staff those prisons, yes, so there is yes. another problem. And the, but then the unions are happy. And, and isn't there a danger, though, of, of when you change the law? I mean, everybody wants to be tough on crime. If you change the law oh. and you back off that, then... That's why then they haven't done it yet. <laughs> That's yeah. why they haven't made any changes yet, because it's very tough. Politically, it's a, it's a very tough thing to, to in essence, uh, lessen penalties and, and, and look weaker on, on, on certain offenses. And that's why the legislature hasn't done it. Yeah, but now would be the time, because it would ha have to be bipartisan. Yeah. And it's a recognition of some budget and fiscal realities. We've seen bipartisan that worked really well on the ODOT yeah. budget that we had uh, <laughs> delays and delays. But, uh, but they got it done. Yeah, that's right. They got it done. That's right. All right. Well, it's time for our weekly off-the-record comments from our panel. Final thoughts or predictions for the week ahead. And Bill Cohen, you were first. Uh, I'm predicting the legislature will not approve any kind of uh, casino plan, but once again, a proposal to uh, legalize uh, gambling casinos in Ohio will appear on the November ballot by petition. It's a and shocking I thing. You're really <laughs> going out on a limb there, yeah. Bill. But unlike the one that got clobbered last year, 63 to 37 percent, I think this one is going to be much closer. It'll be, I think it'll be the closest of the five that we will now have had on the ballot since 1990. All right. Herb Asher. You know, while we'll see some indicators of the economy get better in the housing area and the banks and all of that, the unemployment statistics will continue to get worse and worse, as a lot of people are saying. And that'll create interesting challenges for, for our state budget makers right now, because I, I, if, I, if I had the budget, I'd want to get it out of the House immediately, get it over the Senate, because I assume every month that goes by, we're going to see actually revenue estimates that are actually lower and lower. All right, Bob Clegg. Um, as an Italian-American, I'd like to uh, have everybody remember our earthquake victims uh, in Italy that, that struck on Monday and that if they want to, they can go to redcross.org or the National Italian-American Foundation website, which is niaf.org, to make a contribution. All right. Well, thank you. And I've got a quick final thought. Congratulations to the Blue Jackets. Hope they're in for at least a little while. So it's nice to see a Columbus team in the playoffs here. Nice to see a professional sports team from Ohio <laughs> in the playoffs. Who am I kidding? All right. Well, that is Columbus on the record for this week. You can continue the conversation at our website. Our question this week is, should bars have slots if casinos and racetracks have them? That's at our website, wosu.org slash cotr. I'm Karen Kassler. I will be back in this chair next week as Mike Thompson takes some more time off. Have a good week.